My name is Zhou Yulang, Director of Track 2 Diplomacy at the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations, and welcome to the Bush China Foundation podcast. Sitting on important historical crossroads, Afghanistan has a vast cultural heritage, but its future is uncertain as instability and chaos persist in the country following the recent takeover of the Taliban. Just two decades ago, the Taliban blew up the 6th century Bamiyan Buddha statues, declaring them idols. Today, Afghanistan's heritage remains constantly under threat. Looting operations constitute a significant source of income for terrorist groups, and trade in illicit antiquities fund weapons that are fueling violence. The international community can do little to secure the sites and artifacts, especially without working directly with the Taliban. Although Afghanistan has long been considered a bright spot for U.S.-China cooperation, great power competition has complicated efforts to coordinate in response to the ever-changing security situation on the ground. Can cultural diplomacy play a role in the security of Afghanistan and the region? What should major powers like the United States and China do to help preserve cultural resources in Afghanistan and avert their use for funding instability? Do they have any leverage in negotiating with the Taliban on this issue? Today, we'll unpack some of these thorny issues at the intersection of cultural preservation and diplomacy with Dr. Laura Tedesco. Dr. Tedesco is the Cultural Heritage Program Manager for the State Department's Bureau of South and Central Asian Affairs. Her work is centered on helping U.S. embassies across the region identify and guide cultural preservation projects supported by the State Department, and she has spent over a decade working to save Afghanistan's cultural treasures from a host of various threats. She previously worked at the U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan, developing and overseeing initiatives to support the preservation of Afghanistan's cultural patrimony, including numerous archaeological sites, monuments, and the National Museum of Afghanistan. She regularly offers her insights in these issues, and she is featured on the Monuments Woman podcast. If anyone would like to check that out, it's packed with great stories, and I highly recommend it. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Zoe. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, Laura, let's get started. Tell me about your role as a trained archaeologist at the State Department. Why is your work important in traditional diplomacy, specific to the region you work in? Right. So at first glance, it may seem unusual that there's an archaeologist who works for the Department of State. And in fact, it is a little bit unusual. There aren't many archaeologists. There are a few. And I was hired initially by the State Department for what was to be a sort of very short-term assignment to work just in Afghanistan to help identify cultural preservation projects that could be supported by the U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan and the Department of State as a diplomatic tool to sort of, the idea behind it was to uh, strengthen a, a national identity for Afghans by highlighting the nation's very rich and invaluable heritage. And what was to be a short-term assignment just for a year has turned into now more than 11 years of focusing on that work because there's much more involved than than what could be accomplished in just one year. 
Great, thank you. And what are the major challenges of conducting your work? Have they changed at all over the years? They have changed. And the major challenges, well, specifically for working in Afghanistan, as you've mentioned in the introduction, I my work does include other countries in South and Central Asia, but focusing on Afghanistan, the declining security landscape over the last 11 years has affected sort of my ability to move around the country of Afghanistan when I would make visits. I've, I've made more than 50 visits there. And with each successive visit, it became a little more difficult to move freely or out into the provinces simply because the security situation was declining. And then with the impact of the COVID pandemic, that prevented my ability to travel to Afghanistan uh, just for, for general health concerns. And then in the last six months, sort of the complete takeover of governance in Afghanistan by the Taliban has really impacted also my ability or the State Department's ability or specifically in cultural preservation to work directly with the Afghan specialists in this sector. So the challenges have always been there and they've just gotten more exaggerated over the years. And in your extensive experience in Afghanistan, I wonder if you could give our listeners an overview of Afghanistan's cultural heritage, how vast it is, the condition of some of the more precious sites and items, and what they mean to world history. So that's such a big topic, and it would be difficult to encapsulate that in just a few minutes, but I'll try. I mean, first, let's begin with where Afghanistan is located in the world. In, in its geographic location, it is positioned, you know, sort of on this crossroads between Central Asia and South Asia, and it's landlocked. So it has no ports, no water ports, but it's crisscrossed by mountain passes and rivers that have facilitated the movement of people and armies and influences for millennia. And that crisscrossing and sort of cultural crossroads that Afghanistan is, has resulted in a very unique cultural heritage for Afghanistan. It's, it's unique in the world for the kind of melding of influences and ideas and artistic traditions that have flourished in Afghanistan. So its cultural heritage is very unique for those attributes. And it's also been imperiled over the past four or five decades, just for sort of the lack of broad attention that has been brought to Af protecting Afghanistan's heritage. There has been some attention, but there have been periods of neglect where sites are left sort of untended to. You've mentioned already the destruction of the Bamiyan Buddhas by the Taliban in 2001. That was devastating to what was invaluable in Afghanistan's heritage. Um, and then there, there has been periods of looting of archaeological sites, which really is also devastating 
towards what the world could know about not just Afghanistan's heritage as it's important for Afghans, but as it sort of helps tell a larger narrative and contributes to understanding the heritage of an entire region, and I would argue even for the world. So given the Taliban's previous experience with cultural sites and artifacts, should we be worried for the future? And what should we look for as we assess the situation? That's a very good question. The Taliban have, for now nearly a year, been making public statements that they intend to protect Afghanistan's heritage. So if we look at that, or those statements that have been made, and, and thus far, to my knowledge, in the last six months, there has not been deliberate destruction of sites as dictated by the Taliban. But it becomes a point where the international community can vocalize that the, the world is watching with respect to what position the Taliban will continue to take to protect the nation's heritage that is now under their stewardship. Can we dig deeper on all the threats that's affecting cultural preservation in Afghanistan? Because I think Afghanistan is far from the first country whose antiquities have been put in danger by either terrorist groups or the geopolitical situation. And what are some things we have learned from other episodes of recent history? And how can they help us protect Afghanistan's cultural heritage? So to the first part of your question of what the threats are, what I and other specialists who work on cultural preservation in Afghanistan regard as perhaps the most serious threat right now is that the population of bright, trained Afghans who have come up in the last two decades through education and training and experience in protecting Afghanistan's heritage and in working in Afghanistan's museums, that those individuals are largely unable to do their work now. And I regard that, and either they've left Afghanistan or they simply can't do their jobs. I regard that as perhaps the most serious threat at the moment. And then Subsequent threats are just in addition to the population of very qualified and able Afghans who had been working in their protecting their nation's heritage that they, they can't do their work now. Then it's just a general neglect of sites and sort of a general lack of oversight by a governing institution, whether it's the Taliban or sort of the presence of an international community who can be on the ground to take a look at sites and see their condition and document their condition. So the threats are varied. I think that a lesson that can be learned is to continue to bring attention to what's imperiled about a nation's heritage, whether it's Syria, whether it's Afghanistan, Yemen, Myanmar, there, there are sadly far too many examples that we could point to. And it's that once a country's heritage is destroyed or stolen, it is a non-renewable resource. And sadly, we often don't recognize its absence or 
It's the significance of its destruction until the destruction has already happened. And so to more specifically to your question, it would be like we're doing in today's podcast episode. It's simply to sort of bring attention to why heritage protection in general merits prominent discussion. Yeah, I definitely agree to that. And I think we, we can both agree in cultural heritage is important in and of itself to understand our roots and history. But let's look at some of the intersections. I know that in some cases, cultural resources like archaeological sites, buildings and structures, landscapes and objects are used to assert a dominant identity or uh, sometimes are sold to provide funding for violence. But on the other hand, cultural heritage can also contribute to peace building and specifically reconciliation in post-conflict situations. And what are your thoughts on the intersection of culture and security in Afghanistan specifically? Well, I'm biased because I'm, I'm steeped in, in thinking about culture all the time. I think about it obsessively even. I think culture and bringing attention to sort of this fabric that a whole population shares. And by a whole population, I, I mean, even on the scale, it could be a small community, it could be a village, it could be a province, or an entire nation. And that that fabric can, the fabric of culture, and what's shared can really serve to unify and in what could be an apolitical way. And you, you did rightly mention that, that culture and heritage and archaeological sites and artifacts can be used nefariously. They certainly can to sort of prop up dominant ideologies or to justify land occupation or for a whole host of reasons that culture and artifacts can be used for political ends. But culture can serve, I think, as I sometimes refer to it, as it softens the edges and it can unify people. So it's a it's an enormous topic that you've raised and but I think in short it just could be very beneficial in encouraging reconciliation and emphasizing more what people have in common than where they differ. You talked about looting a little bit. And can you walk us through the looting operations and how are they linked to instability? So the looting of archaeological sites and the illicit traffic of antiquities, I mean, it's a very sophisticated kind of economy, uh, dark economy. And it's, it's uh, frankly, not very well understood how those processes are undertaken. I mean, we have usually only information after the fact when sites have already been looted, and then we can try to sort of trace the movement of artifacts that were stolen and and transported across borders and into the hands of, of collectors. But looting occurs for a number of reasons, not just to finance non-state actors. When folks are poor, and they need money. And let's say they're farmers or they live a kind of agrarian life. They know the land that they occupy better than anybody. So they know where the archaeological sites are, where the monuments are, because it's it's their land. And 
they understand their landscape on a kind of, you know, community or provincial level. These sort of, I'm talking about more agrarian based folks. And it's not uncommon for folks who are unwittingly participating in an economy that's ends are very nefarious, meaning a villager may stumble across artifacts in his farmland or where he's grazing, pasturing animals and say, sell them to a shopkeeper for a few dollars to help feed his family. And that shopkeeper may then sell them further, sort of increasingly into a sophisticated market of illicit antiquities trafficking. How much money of those processes actually makes it into the pockets of insurgents or non-state actors is really not well known. So in the case of looting in Afghanistan, estimates are that more than 90% of Afghanistan's archaeological sites have been looted. But we know by looking at satellite imagery from the last couple of years that looting is continuing uh, we can identify that by analyzing images of the landscape and, and where known archaeological sites are and what that landscape looked like in a satellite image a couple of years ago and what it looks like, say, six months ago or one year ago. It, you can see differences in where looting has taken place. So it's ongoing what we don't know right now is where those artifacts that would have been looted, where they're moving in the international illicit market. Well, this is such a complex topic. Do you have any advice for people who are interested in other cultures, but want to make sure their own actions don't contribute to looting or related illicit activities? I have a very simple expression that I use sometimes. It may sound naive or maybe silly. I don't know, but it's just, it's do no harm with respect to cultural heritage. And for individuals who may more specifically want to ensure that they don't somehow unwittingly contribute to the market demand of looted antiquities, it's simply don't buy antiquities from from dealers who who can't produce i would say first i would say don't buy antiquities at all but if if one felt compelled to do that i would say ensure that what's being purchased has can be that it's its absence from its country of origin meaning that it's no longer in its country of origin the path has been fully documented and demonstrated as a legal path. Okay, Laura, let's now pivot to the US-China angle to cultural preservation in Afghanistan, and maybe start with uh, what each country has been doing in this area specifically. In the past 20 years, the US has worked to help protect Afghanistan's cultural heritage. But the withdrawal from the country has definitely affected it. Will you give us a sense of some of the efforts you know of and are personally involved in at this time? You know, the whole world watched what happened in August of 2021 in Afghanistan with the complete Taliban takeover. 
And that sort of in the course of a day changed so much of what would be possible to do in terms of on the ground site preservation in Afghanistan. And prior to that, the the United States, the U.S. Embassy in Kabul was actively supporting a dozen cultural preservation projects, and all of those had to effectively stop because it became impossible to really implement that work on the ground. And it's taken several months, you know, it's really taken several months to maybe sort of regroup and understand, well, in the absence of being physically on the ground protecting sites, preserving them, restoring them, working in the National Museum. How can we reconceive the work so that we're still involved in heritage preservation, but in a remote way? And we've been able to do that on a much modified scale, a much more modest scale than we could, say, six months ago. But we're we're still supporting some cultural preservation programs through the University of Chicago's Oriental Institute through documentation and publication of all the work that they had done previously to make sure that the work that had been carried out is available internationally so people can know about it. And hopefully it will make a contribution when the cultural preservation work can resume one day. And how about China in this regard? I understand Chinese economic interests in Meizai Nark, the country's largest copper deposit, and one of the most significant Buddhist archaeological sites in Afghanistan have been controversial. Despite a shared history of Buddhism, Chinese investments in copper mining could further endanger Afghanistan's heritage. Um, What's your take on this? So I can't really speak to China's efforts on cultural preservation specifically, because I, I simply don't, I don't know enough how China has engaged uniquely in that space. The site of Messinok is infinitely significant, archaeologically and historically. And it has the, the good fortune of the, or the bad fortune, or it's simply the fortune of that it's co-located with the, you know, what is considered perhaps one of the world's largest copper deposits. And that's not accidental, meaning I I always say the ancients were there for the copper, as well as contemporary interests in the copper. It's a resource that's beneficial, that's uh, profitable. There are techniques that can be employed to help both preserve the heritage at the site and access the copper. It doesn't have to be a zero-sum game, meaning... If the copper is mined, then it it doesn't have to mean automatically that the heritage is destroyed. There are ways to uh, benefit from the, the coppers as a resource and also to protect the heritage at the site. There are other examples in the world where this has been effectively done. And um, so my hope would be to see a kind of a balance, a balanced approach of when the time comes when the copper can be mined, that there are real concerted efforts to also help preserve the heritage at the site. Afghanistan has long been considered one of a handful of areas where 
U.S. and Chinese interests overlap, especially uh, given the shared goals in counterterrorism, uh, which has also been confirmed by both leaders. In your opinion, is cultural preservation an area that may allow the two countries to work together more closely? Absolutely. I would say any countries even, and that cultural preservation is not just the domain of the United States or of China or of India or take your pick. It is an effort that all countries can contribute to, can lean into supporting. But with respect to your question, I mean, I would, I would leave that to other experts with whom I work to really speak to specifically. But my view is that there's room for everyone to contribute meaningfully to cultural preservation. Yeah, and this is a great segue to my next question, because there's so much uncertainty about the power transition and how the future will look like in Afghanistan. And what do you think the US, China, and the international community should prioritize uh, when approaching the Taliban as it relates to cultural preservation? My answer harks back to something we said a few moments ago when we were talking. It's that the Taliban themselves have come out publicly and quite prominently with statements that they intend to protect Afghanistan's heritage, that they recognize the importance of that. And I think that it's important for the international community to continue to hold them to that and to hold them accountable for statements they themselves made and said they would uphold. So I would think that internationally, we all have a kind of a role to play in saying, hey, Taliban, you said you were going to do this. We want to make sure you're going to stick to your word. Well, Laura, thank you for demystifying many of these questions. It's always good to get the answers from someone with such a wealth of, of experience, especially on a topic that doesn't get the attention it deserves. Well, thank you for making this podcast episode topic, cultural heritage in Afghanistan. As you said, it's often not given the attention it deserves. So I'm so delighted to join you, Zoe, to be able to talk for a few minutes about something that's uh, quite near and dear to me and I hope for others also. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, likewise, Zoe. Thank you for having me. Remember to look for the Bush China Foundation podcast on our website, SoundCloud and Spotify, where you can follow our conversations. Thank you for listening. Thank you.